Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast for episode number 56 with our gut health expert, Dr. Will Bullswick, or Dr. B, as many of you know him by. Today is part two of our chat where we answer all our listener questions about gut health. But just before I tell you about today's podcast, I'd love to take a quick minute to remind you guys of my top rated webinars that I've developed just for you. This Sunday, the 24th of May, is my second live webinar on evidence-based fat loss and follows on from my very successful first webinar about emotional boredom, stress, and non-hungry eating. If you guys want expert advice and to take a deeper dive into non-hungry eating or evidence-based fat loss, click the link in the show notes or head to my website to check out my 29 AUD webinars, and that's 29 Australian dollars, which is only about 18 US dollars. And hurry, if you want to join me live for this Sunday's webinar, make sure you purchase a ticket now so you can have the opportunity to ask me any questions in the live Q&A at the end of the webinar. Now, back to today's podcast. Dr. B is a double board certified gastroenterologist and a doctor of internal medicine with 14 years as an MD helping his patients reverse symptoms of IBS, leaky gut and other digestive issues. Dr. B is all about stopping problems before they start using an evidence-based approach to gut health, which is why we love him. And in part two of this two-part chat, we start by discussing artificial sweeteners and gut health. We then talk about SIBO treatments, beating the bloat, whether a vegan keto diet is good for gut health, DNA microbiome testing, coconut oil and apple cider vinegar, when should you take probiotics, what to do if you don't tolerate legumes well, what gut health supplements are actually recommended for us, how to stop smelly gas, and finally, whether or not we need to soak our oats and our nuts. These are all listener questions and Dr. B has answered every single one for you guys today. So let's jump straight into part two of our gut health chat with Dr. B. Dr. B, welcome back to the podcast. We are super excited to have you back on today to help us answer some of our listener questions today. Always a pleasure, Leanne. Always a pleasure to come on your show. Well, let's jump straight in. And guys, please, if you haven't heard the first, we've actually done three podcasts with Dr. B now. There were two very early on when we first launched the podcast and the one that we did just before Um, this episode. So if you haven't heard that, please go back and have a listen because Dr. B is an absolute wealth of knowledge and you guys will learn so much. Even if you don't have problems with gut health, you'll learn so much for your own general knowledge. So today's episode will be all about our listener questions. The first one, Dr. B, is from Sarah. Sarah would like to know, how do artificial sweetness affect gut health and are they worse than using normal sugar? Oh my gosh. Okay. So you know, it's funny um, because somehow this became a controversial topic on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I don't really understand why that is, mm. because I feel like it's quite clear to me that artificial sweeteners have an impact on the gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. The, the studies make that quite clear. Um, and you know, the question is, do artificial sweeteners have a worse effect on the microbiome than sugar. actual sugar does? Mm. And it's hard for me to completely answer that question, but. I, what I would put, what I would say is this: I, I, I'm trying to avoid both. Mm. You know, I mean, the bottom yeah. line is I'm trying to avoid both. Yeah, I don't, I don't view the artificial sweetener as a, like an, a step up from a health perspective. 
Yeah. Whether or not it's worse in terms of the gut microbiome, I don't know how you feel about it, Leanne. I feel like it, it may be worse, but I haven't seen a good enough study to really say with any sort of like definitive nature mm. that it is. Mm. And I guess also it depends on the type as well. Right. So, you know, so I don't know what you use, Leanne. For me, I don't use a lot of sweeteners. Mm -hmm. I've gotten very used to, for example, my coffee. I typically will drink my coffee black. Mm -hmm. But when I do use a sweet sweetener, um, examples of ones, ones that I will potentially use, I'll use erythritol. Mm -hmm. If you look, there actually are studies with erythritol and the gut microbiome. And it shows that erythritol, because of its chemical structure, it actually gets absorbed very quickly and then excreted. Still no calories. But it doesn't, it doesn't actually get down to the gut microbiome in the colon where it could actually alter the gut microbiome. So there's no evidence of change with erythritol. Mm -hmm. um, I'll use stevia on, on occasion, not often, certainly not daily. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I think that it's within, uh, I think it would be fair to also talk about um, more viscous natural sweeteners like molasses mm -hmm. or maple syrup. Rasmus syrup. Or honey, mm -hmm. you know. Um, look, I mean, I sugar is sugar. Yeah, but I, I do think that there's some at least redeeming qualities to these more viscous sweeteners that make it better than just you know granulated white sugar. Mm. Completely agree. And to be honest, if I make a cake or something like that, back in my early university days, I'd be trying all the, you know, the sweeteners and that sort of thing. But these days, like my family's like, I swear to God, if you make that cake healthy, like just make it like normal, especially my dad. He's like, I'm not eating it if you healthify it. So I just, if I make a cake, which is on a very rare occasion, it's probably for a loved one's birthday, which might be a couple of times a year only. I just use normal. I just use normal sugar. That's all I do. Yeah. And then as you said, day to day, I don't really eat sugar at all. All my tea and coffee is completely unsweetened. Um, I don't really have a need to put sugar into anything else. So I think it's really, if you're asking that question, really dependent on the amount that you're having. And as you said, the frequency of it as well, um, which are probably the two big things to, to really think about, aren't they? And one thing I would add real quick is since we're on the topic of artificial sweeteners, I see a lot of patients with digestive symptoms as a result, independent of the gut microbiome. Yeah. I see a lot of patients with gas and bloating. Yeah. And even, believe it or not, diarrhea. From the sugar alcohols. From the sugar alcohols. Yeah. And so, and in those patients, gas, bloating, diarrhea, I will often ask them, so do you, do you drink dairy? Mm -hmm. And then the next question is, do you use any artificial sweeteners? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the, the recommendation is always the same, which is, Try getting rid of the dairy, try getting rid of the artificial sweeteners, and let's see where that takes us. Mm -hmm. And you'll find a good number of patients who actually are a lot better. Yeah. And for anyone listening at home, if you're wondering what sugar alcohols are, you can either Google it, or they're the types of artificial sweeteners that end in all. So like the xylitol, the mannitol, the sorbitols, they're the ones that just aren't as um, you know, well-absorbed and kind of drawn a little bit of extra water and that sort of thing um, mm -hmm. into the GI tract, isn't it? Which can create some of those symptoms of bloating and gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it's the amount. And if you look on any, um, you know, product that isn't uh, like a no sugar sort of product, like a sugar-free chocolate or a sugar-free bag of lollies, there's always a, a label on it. Well, in Australia anyway, that says, you know, excess consumption may have that laxative effect. Mm. So really do take that into consideration. If you're eating a whole, a whole block of sugar-free chocolate or a bag of sugar-free lollies and you're running to the bathroom the next day, that probably has something to do with it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Now, the next question from JJ is thoughts on SIBO treatment with antibiotics or without antibiotics? And I think this is a great one for you, Dr. B. And I think we probably should take a step back and talk about even just the diagnosis of SIBO to begin with, because I feel like in the alternative health space, it's a 
sort of one of those diagnoses that's thrown around a lot, like leaky gut. A lot of people say that they have it, but there's not a lot of um, formal testing and um, diagnostic criteria for it, is there? Yeah. You, well, you have to know what you're treating. I mean, that's, that is um, uh, step one to clinical care, no matter who you are, whether you're a dietitian or, or a doctor or whoever you may be, you have to know what you're actually treating. Mm-hmm. And so if someone labels you with a diagnosis and it proves to be the wrong diagnosis, it leads you down a path that's frankly a waste of your time and can actually cause harm. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where the diagnosis of SIBO or SIBO, however we want to say it, that's where the diagnosis becomes really quite critically important because it should not, ne- it should never be diagnosed based upon history alone. Mm. You, you should never, you never just, you should never say, oh, well, it sounds like you have this and therefore I'm going to treat you with antibiotics. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a scenario where you could really hurt someone. And I would draw comparisons. It's like you said, it's very similar to leaky gut. You know, it becomes trendy, becomes a hot button item. Everyone thinks that they have it. They mm-hmm. go to these alternative care practitioners and the alternative care practitioners are happy to tell them, yeah, you do, right? But that's not reliable information. And it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys have this in Australia or not. In the US, we have a, a big thing with a Lyme disease. Do you guys ever have that? No. No, okay. it's, it's becoming a little bit more frequent, particularly if people have visited America and lived there for a period, but nowhere near what, like the rates that what you guys have. Well, so just, just to put in the perspective, because I think it's like a parallel story. Mm-hmm. Lyme disease is a condition that is caused by a bacteria frequently carried by ticks. Mm-hmm. So you can get bit by a tick if you're in the United States, and then you get this Lyme disease. People usually get a rash. It's like a special rash. It looks like a target, like a, like a target sign. Mm-hmm. And then they can have symptoms after the Lyme disease. The problem is that like you have these Lyme practitioners now that are diagnosing people without blood tests and they call themselves Lyme literate. And what that means is that, oh, no one else understands Lyme disease, but I do. And the blood <laughs> test is negative, right? And they'll, and they'll say, oh, well, the blood test is negative, but I still think that you have it based upon clinical symptoms. So like, really? What clinical symptoms are those? fatigue, brain fog, <laughs> yeah. like the most general yeah. symptoms that exist. Yeah. Like, come on. So, so anyway, the, the point being that the testing for, I, I call it SIBO, we can call it SIBO, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. The testing for this condition should be done in order to determine whether or not you actually have it. Okay. And typically the, the most common test is going to be a breath test. Mm-hmm. The gold standard test is actually to take a, a sample from a person's small intestine. So you have to actually do an invasive procedure, obtain a sample using a special technique, and then you culture that sample to determine whether or not they have this condition. Mm-hmm. That's very rarely done. Most people just do the breath test because it's so much easier to do. But I have to tell you, like, so I'm a gastroenterologist. I take care of complex cases. Gas and bloating is something I do all day long changing bowel habits all day long. Mm-hmm. I very, very rarely order these tests. Extremely rarely. Because most of the time, I discover a diagnosis before I get to that. And the thing that I worry about, the reason why I don't go for this too quick, and this comes back to the original question from JJ. Her question was, antibiotics or no antibiotics? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is, and this is what I see time after time after time, the people who go antibiotics, they may feel better for a short period of time. If they're lucky, if they're lucky, they get a couple weeks where they feel better. Many of them don't feel better at all when they take it. And then it comes back. And if you look at the studies that have been done, 
there's a doctor in the United States, Mark Pimentel, and I know that he's made the tour to Australia and been on a lot of podcasts. And if you look at the studies, if you look at recurrence rates for this condition, it's like almost 100% within a year. Mm. So you take the antibiotic, but then it comes back. So what was the point? Well, I guess, I guess you did buy yourself relief for a period of time, but here's my concern. My concern is that we know that this condition is an example of dysbiosis. Mm. Right? This is one way that dysbiosis can manifest. And dysbiosis is related to a loss of species, injury to the microbiome. Antibiotics are not adding in new species. They're antibiotic. They're not adding in new species. They're taking them away. There's only one direction that they can move you, mm-hmm. which is in the direction that you don't want. If you have this, I worry that people are accepting, they don't realize it, but I worry that they are accepting short-term gain at the expense of long-term loss. They may feel better on a temporary basis, but then their gut is actually worse months later. That's what I worry with antibiotics. So I actually believe in an approach that is non-antibiotic. And my success rates are actually really, really good. But the key is that most of the time, that's not what the diagnosis actually is. Most of the time, it's a person with gas and bloating who's constipated. So once you make them poop, they feel better. Exactly. I was going to say, a lot of people don't realize this. The gas and bloating comes from the constipation because everything's not moving through properly as well. You fix the bowels or you fix the constipation, generally the other symptoms go away. There's these interesting studies where they infuse methane gas into, it's, it's an animal model study. They infuse methane gas into the animal and the animal becomes constipated. So in other words, gas causes constipation. And then there's adult human studies where they show people who are constipated produce more gas. So it's this vicious cycle. You become constipated, so you produce more gas, which leads to more constipation, which leads to more gas. And the way you break that cycle is to make them poop. Mm -hmm. It's actually like the solution is quite simple. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So you are more of the belief that treating, I guess, the symptoms, but not just looking at clinical symptoms as well, doing, as we talked about in the first podcast, checking all those red flag boxes as well, making sure there's nothing really sinister going on, and then doing simple things like regulating the bowels out, managing stress levels, eating a ton more plants, um, rather than just looking at that diagnosis. And because as, again, as we talked about in the first podcast, people are just looking for a diagnosis to, to put a label on something to say, okay, now I have this, I've had these terrible symptoms for how long now? At least now I know what this is versus um, actually just trying to treat um, some of those symptoms without, without the label. Exactly. And, I, and I, just to give you an example, I saw a patient literally today mm-hmm. and she was diagnosed with methane predominant small intestine bacterial overgrowth. She went on three courses of antibiotics. One of the courses of antibiotics included a second antibiotic called neomycin. All right. She didn't get better. Like she's like, I felt better like while I was on the antibiotics. And then as soon as I came off, it was right back to where I was before, if not worse. Mm-hmm. And then she went on like basically naturopathic treatments with um, like oregano oil to try to kill bacteria. All these strategies are designed, yeah. they're all the same. You're trying to kill the bacteria, but that's not yeah. the solution. Yeah. And the and the irony is that she was super constipated and she knew it. And I was like, why don't we just start with the basics? Let's get you into a rhythm. Let's get you pooping. Yeah. If we get you into a rhythm, I bet you you feel better. Exactly. And if that goes away and you feel better and the constipation is gone, are you really going to be worried about um, everything else that's going on? Because a lot of those symptoms would have died down. Therefore, the first diagnosis, void in a lot of cases. <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. And I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, if a person is constipated, I will typically treat the constipation 
before I start to in- introduce dietary change. I usually will wait on the dietary change, fix the constipation first, mm-hmm. then come back to the diet. All righty. Now, next question probably just sort of feeds straight into the one we were just discussing from Hopi is how to beat the bloat, please. And I think it's probably important to start off with saying um, that bloating is normal for humans, but I guess it's when does normal become abnormal when we're talking about bloating? Because again, I get a lot of young females, 16, 17, 20 years old being like, oh my God, I'm bloated, please help. And it's like, what degree of bloating are we talking about? And as we, I think we've discussed in a a previous podcast, there actually is a clinical diagnosis for bloating as well, isn't there? Yeah. And and so it's an extremely common symptom. There are challenges to this because there aren't great diagnostic tests and there's not necessarily great interventions. Many of the things that people will take for gas and bloating, for example, simethicone, it's just not that great. It's just not that great. I mean, most people don't experience any sort of sustained relief from that. So to me, I think of bloating, gas and bloating in four parts. Mm -hmm. There's four things that I'm thinking about as your doctor. So for the people who are at home right now and they have gas and bloating, think about these things for yourself. Number one, are you swallowing air? Mm -hmm. That's the first question. Are you swallowing air? And so that can come in the form of sipping through straws, chewing gum, sucking on candy, hard candies. Um, It could be carbonated drinks. Like, you know, we don't think about it, but it's got gas, Mm -hmm. right? Or are you the person who is like an aggressive eater? Do you eat fast? Do you drink? Do you gulp? You know, the, the person who's an aggressive eater, they need to slow down because when you eat sloppy, when you go too fast and you're, you're just attacking your food. Sorry for that visual. I apologize. <laughs> but, but when you eat aggressively, you also get sloppy swallows. And sloppy, sloppy swallows include air. Mm-hmm. You're not just swallowing your food. Mm-hmm. All right. So an air that goes down needs to come up either through a belch or it's going to wiggle its way through your intestine all 20 to 25 feet. And it's going to come out the other end, you know, as a poop. Yeah. So... Um, so that's the first thing. The, sec- the second thing is, is there something from a dietary perspective? So thinking about your diet, specific foods, we've already mentioned two of them. I think about dairy. I think about artificial sweeteners. Mm-hmm. And then more broadly, I will think about FODMAPs. Okay. I will think about the low FODMAP diet. But what I don't want to do is introduce the low FODMAP diet and keep you low FODMAP. That's a horrible idea for your gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. Most FODMAPs are actually healthy. Most FODMAPs are prebiotic. Okay, so but those are some of the things. Is there something in your food? The third thing is motility. Are you moving your gut? Are you moving your gut? Are you moving your bowels the way that you're supposed to? Mm-hmm. This is where the constipation comes in, which you and I have already talked about. And then the fourth thing is the microbiome. And, and so when it comes to the microbiome, is there something that's happened in the past that could have damaged the microbiome, like antibiotic use or like um, oral contraceptive use or proton pump inhibitors. Um, Either way, you know, this is one of the other things that can definitely lead to gas and bloating. And that's where something like a probiotic or a prebiotic supplement may come into play and be very beneficial. Mm -hmm. And of course, these three things, your diet, your microbiome, and the motility of your gut are intertwined. You can't really separate them as discrete individual things. So you have to think about, though, these these three parts plus swallowing the gas when it comes to gas and bloating. 
Love it. And I'll probably even add one further thing that I think a lot of people don't really realize as well is just the amount of whole foods versus processed foods that you eat. Because a lot of processing foods have a ton of sugar, artificial sweeteners, really, really high in fat. And the body does struggle to break down and digest a lot of that as well, which can, for some people, add to a lot more of the bloating. So really just get back to basics and eat more whole foods, more plants, more fiber before doing anything crazy or drastic as well. It's a great point. And remembering that a little bit of bloating is normal. Like if you're going to eat a super high fiber meal, if you're going to go out for a meal with Mexican with lots of beans in it, people are going to feel a little bit bloated after that. That's normal. But if you're somebody that wakes, you know, from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed at night and they're constantly bloated, it gets worse throughout the day. It's painful. They're undoing, you know, the button on their jean you know, that's a problem. Yep. So it's really a little bit of bloating is normal. It's, you know, we're humans, we get we get bloated, it's okay. Yep. But it's really the degree and how often this is happening, which I urge a lot of people to think about as well. Yeah, yeah. Right. And now Karen, now this is a super interesting question. I'm very, very excited to hear your response. Karen would like to know, is a vegan ketogenic diet good for gut health long-term? And this one stopped me and I was like, I'm very much not a fan very much not a fan. That's terrible English, but I'm not a fan of the ketogenic diet in general. And I would imagine adding on a plant-based ketogenic diet would be just another whole layer of restriction on top of that, um, which I couldn't imagine people would be able to maintain long-term either. Yeah. And I think that you just nailed it. So, you know, basically just to play off of what you just said, there's a restrictive element to any sort of ketogenic diet, whether it's a vegan ketogenic diet, a plant-based ketogenic diet, or it's not. I think that you can get fiber in terms of grams from a ketogenic diet, mm. from, a, from a plant-based ketogenic diet, but what you're not going to get is the diversity. And we know that the greatest predictor, the most powerful predictor, as I've said, I think on every episode that I've ever been on your show, Leanne, the most powerful predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. And you can't accomplish 70% fat in your diet without narrowing down the diversity of plants within your diet and also with, without way overemphasizing things that are high in fat and low in everything else. Mm. You know, you can only eat so many avocados, right? Mm -hmm. Most people who go on a plant-based ketogenic diet are going to be introducing a lot of oil. Mm -hmm. Oil is high calorie, low nutrient, zero fiber. Mm -hmm. And so there's just no, I'm not someone who lives in a world where you can't eat, consume any oil at all. I have some oil, I just don't have a ton of it because I don't view it as adding, you know, to my health. I don't view it as adding to my life expectancy or my health span. I just view it as something that I like the way it tastes. So once in a while I do a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that's the, and that's the way I feel in general about the plant-based keto, ketogenic diet. I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it's good for your gut microbiome. I do think it's a step up from some of the alternative diets that exist out there. Don't get me wrong. I just don't think that it's the right choice if you're thinking about your long-term health. And I even would struggle to believe that they're able to get enough fiber in, um, even on a ketogenic type diet, because generally carbohydrates are under 20%. And so even to really be achieving the levels of fiber intake that we want, um, the entire, you know, it all have to come from minimal types of vegetables. And, you know, I know on a ketogenic diet, if you're doing it, you know, if you're doing it properly, if you're doing it strictly, like you're weighing things like your lettuce. And I just personally don't think that that's any way to live. Like if I have to weigh out my lettuce, like I'm done, I'm out. That's not for me. <laughs> I completely agree with you. The minute that you have to start weighing your food, I'm out. I'm, I'm, you'll see my cars, like the, the tires on my car spinning as I <laughs> screech out of the parking lot. Um, you know, I'm sure you would agree with me that some people who do a ketogenic diet, whether it's a plant-based ketogenic diet or it's not a, a plant-based ketogenic diet, it's a more traditional one that, that is animal product heavy. 
some people have gotten a little bit more savvy when it comes to these diets because they've realized that fiber is a carb. Mm-hmm. It is. Fiber is a carb. Mm-hmm. And if you're going low fiber, and you, I'm sorry, if you're going low carb and you're eliminating fiber in the process, you're making a mistake. So some people, what they do is they look at net carbs and they'll actually subtract out the fiber. So they'll say, how many grams of carbs do I have in there? But then they subtract out the fiber carbs. They don't count it towards their net carbs. And I think that's a more intelligent, sophisticated way to approach a low-carb diet. Mm. But I just don't see any value to actually doing a low-carb diet when it, it has to force you into a restrictive pattern. And there's the risks that come with that to your gut microbiome or even to you know potentially your relationship with food, the healthier relationship with your food. Mm. You know, and, and and sort of a disordered pattern. Definitely, and even I would say, from a clinical perspective, that's not even a, a true keto. Like that wouldn't actually put you in ketosis if you were just subtracting the the fiber out of that. Because even in Australia, we wouldn't have the ability to do that. Our food labeling is very different. We don't include the fiber in the carbohydrate amount. We have a completely separate column for fiber altogether, oh, wow. and it's not actually legal to have to put the fiber on a label. So you'll find a lot of packaged products don't even have fiber on it, unless oh. it is a product that is claiming that it is high fiber. Then of course the company will put it on there. So so, and I noticed that the labeling in America is very different where the fiber is always found underneath the carbohydrate. So I'd agree that that is a much better way to do it if you're going to go down that route. But um, yeah, again, I'm, I'm not a fan, but yeah. good to hear your opinions on it yeah. as well. <laughs> well we're, we're usually, we're almost always on the same page with this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Now, next question from Ben, and this is, I think is really um, topical at the moment as well, is Dr. B, what's your question on DNA gut microbiome testing? Because there's a lot of new companies popping up doing these gut microbiome tests and, and you know, basically giving personalized nutrition to go with it. But as far as I'm aware, we're not quite there yet in terms of microbiome analysis and, and personalized nutrition. Yeah, we're not. I don't think we're there yet. Oh, are we? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't think we're there yet. So, you know, your, your gut microbiome varies like literally by, I, I would argue potentially by the minute. Um, so because these microbes you have to understand are turning over so quickly, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, did you ever see the movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio? And so it was this action movie in the United States, Inception. And people, um, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a fun action movie. And it kind of the idea is that there's different layers of time. You know, it's kind of like when we have a dream and we think that dream went on for so long, yeah. right? It feels like you're in this dream for hours when in fact, if you were to check check your sleep patterns, you were in that dream for like five minutes, Yeah, you know? And so with our gut microbes, they actually turn over and replicate 50 times a day. Wow. 50 times a day. So it takes us 20 or 30 years to turn over one generation and it takes them 20 to 30 minutes, which is quite fascinating. And Mm. so the point from my perspective is that the dietary choices or the lifestyle choices that you make in a day are causing dynamic changes to your gut microbiome literally almost by the minute. And so you measure your gut microbiome, this like one minute, and it may show specific things related to the fact that you just had a bean burrito at the Mexican joint, like, you know, Mm -hmm. for dinner last night, Mm -hmm. right? And it shows up in the stool test. And then they're giving you this information and feedback based upon what it looked like in the snapshot in this moment. And I don't know that that's reliable. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's reliable. And so what I need, which we don't currently have when it comes to these stool tests, is I need validation. I need validation. So what that would look like is if we developed a study together, Leanne, and we had 200 people, okay, who have irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. And on 100 of them, we do the stool test 
and then we in, and then we adjust their diet based upon the stool test. Mm-hmm. And in the other 100 people, we just let them continue to eat whatever they normally eat. Mm-hmm. And if we show that the people getting the stool test actually had clinical improvement of their condition, of their disease, you got me. Mm-hmm. I'm on board. You got me. I'm on board. If you can show me through a validation study that the information that you are providing me can improve and enhance the care or the health of my patient, then I'm going to use it. But that study does not exist yet. So what we have right now is interesting information. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. That's kind of curious. Mm. Yeah. But they haven't actually validated to show that it does anything. Yeah, definitely. And I've been contacted by a few companies who have wanted to show me these studies in the research because, of course, as a clinical dietitian, I asked for it as well. And the research and the studies that they've got have been based on a couple of a couple of patients at their own clinic. So the studies run by the, the own company, very, very small sample sizes and zero follow-up. You know, the patients have come back at the next appointment and gone, I feel great. So they're using um, their... Um, their own personal, you know, feelings. And as we know, you know, placebo effects and that sort of thing throughout research studies as well. So I haven't really seen, as you've said, any sort of actual reliable research or anything to date either. I love, I love placebo effects. There was this (laughs) one study that they did at, I think it was at Harvard in Boston, Uh where they took IBS patients. And it's interesting because if you look at placebo controlled studies with IBS, literally in some cases, 50% of them get better. Yes. Yes. And so in this Harvard study, they actually took people with IBS and they told them they were giving them a placebo. They actually told them they were giving them a placebo and they got better. <laughs> Isn't that a- he's like, no, no, he's kidding me. He's having me on. I'm def- this is definitely the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's amazing. It's like amazing how powerful a placebo is. And that's why you need control groups and studies. You can't just have a series mm. because the if you don't have a control group and you can't compare it, then you then you don't know how strong the placebo effect is. Exactly. And amazing how much the mind can affect um, conditions like IBS as well, isn't it? Which we previously talked about in other podcasts. Yeah, 100%. So I guess we're not quite there yet in terms of gut microbiome testing, but are you excited for where this might go in the future? You know, yeah. can you see five, 10 years down the track and you go, this could be an awesome clinical tool for me to use in my practice? Well, uh, let me give you an example because it, there's there's one study that um, was done and it's actually a, a few years old now um, okay. cu- coming out of Israel mm-hmm. where what they did is they first took a, a, a like cohort of people that they used to learn about connections between gut microbiome mm-hmm. and blood sugar. All right. And so these people were a continuous glucose monitor. And they wrote down what they ate and they correlated the gut microbiome to the response to individual foods. And they found that they could predict based upon their gut microbiome, which foods for an an individual person, which foods would actually spike their blood sugar. And it wasn't the same for everyone. So for example, some people could have that cupcake Mm. and they would be okay. And so then they took this and they applied it to a validation cohort. So they got a new group of people and they basically looked at their microbiome and they said, hey, based upon your microbiome, we think that this is the type of food that you should eat. And they showed by focusing on those specific foods, they could actually improve the blood sugar of that group compared to a a group of people that didn't get that information. So there are studies, Leanne, that are suggesting that this is possible. Mm. There are studies suggesting that this is possible. The issue is that the commercially available products have not done those studies. Mm. And I'm sure that each of the you know different facilities and companies that offer this sort of do it slightly different as well or have slightly different approaches throughout the companies as well. 
Yeah, so I'm excited. I think five to 10 years from now, we will be able to do this. Um, there's a guy in the UK, his name is Tim Spector. Mm-hmm. And he's a big microbiome researcher, and he's building a company around this idea. And I trust, because I trust him as a researcher, I trust that it will be very well done. Exciting. It's very exciting uh, time to be working within this gut health space, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So much so much new information has come out in the last five years and will come out in the next sort of five to 10 years as well. Well, because I just think it's the real deal. Yeah. You know, there's things in, in health and nutrition that are fads. There's things that are trendy. Mm-hmm. And then there's things that are true scientific discovery that change, that shift paradigms and change the way we think about our body. Mm. And I think our gut microbiome is one of those. I think it's really um, been a revelation Mm. to the way our body works. Fascinating. Now, Tam would like to know, a simple one for you, is coconut oil and apple cider vinegar good for gut health? Oh, this is a good question. I appreciate Tim thinking this, uh, asking this. (laughs) So, okay. So coconut oil, very trendy. Very. Very trendy. Some people putting it in their coffee. Disgusting. All right. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) Um, Here's the problem. Saturated fat, reproducibly in multiple studies, has been demonstrated to damage the gut. Mm -hmm. Saturated fat. Now, most people think of saturated fat, they think of the fat coming from animal products. Mm -hmm. They think of like a steak or something like that. Okay. But coconut oil and palm oil and, you know, frankly, coconut period. Coconut milk, coconut, you know, I mean, honestly, just eating a coconut. It is predominantly saturated fat that you get from coconut. Mm -hmm. And so, and there are studies not specifically to the gut microbiome with coconut oil, but there are studies in other parts of the body where you see that the saturated fat from coconut has the same physiologic effects as the saturated fat that comes from animal products. And for that reason, I can't say that coconut oil is good for the microbiome. If anything, I think it's bad for the microbiome. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's, that's coconut oil. I actually, in my book, say explicitly that coconut oil, should try, you should try to avoid it. Yeah. Um, right. I'm not perfect. You know, I don't, so you know that, like, I, don't, I personally don't drink dairy. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when I get a latte, like I like a good mocha sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes I'll get coconut milk. And I think it's okay to indulge. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like having a beer. You're not doing it for your health. You're doing it because it's fun. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. But but you just don't want to make it your daily habit. That's the issue. You don't want to be putting this stuff into your coffee. Yeah, adding it in because you think it has a health benefit. Right. Exactly. Um, and it, you know, it's the habits that we have to be so careful about. Because any time you make something a habit, it's just if it's a bad choice, it's gonna come back to get you. Mm-hmm. So and then um when with regard to apple cider vinegar, so we hype up apple cider vinegar quite a bit. And there aren't great studies specifically to apple cider vinegar. Mm -hmm. There are some studies to suggest that vinegar, period, which of course is the byproduct of bacterial metabolism, Mm -hmm. they're taking sugar and they're turning it into this alcohol or into this combination of alcohol and acids. That's vinegar. Um, Vinegar, period, has shown some health benefits, you know, for example, with blood glucose control and some metabolic benefits, potentially some improvement in terms of weight loss. I think that it's conceptually similar to kombucha. Mm-hmm. Like I, I actually would treat them the same. Apple cider vinegar with the mother, meaning that it has not been pasteurized, I would treat the same as kombucha. It's a lot of hype. There's not a ton of science. It's better than drinking some artificially sweetened you know, sugar beverage, mm. right? It's not better than water. 
Mm-hmm. You're better off drinking more water. And be careful about your teeth. Yes. Because um, the acidity can erode the enamel on your teeth and you don't want bad teeth. No one wants that. And I also think be careful of why you're taking it because I have so many people saying, oh, I take you know hot lemon juice, cayenne pepper, and apple cider vinegar in the morning and I'm not losing any weight. So if you're doing it from the premises that this is going to help you burn more fat, then you know, you're just wasting your money. You may as well just start your day with just a plain glass of water. That um, We just don't have the research and the studies to show that this is any real benefit. And you might say, you know, things have maybe the slightest effect on our metabolism, you know, cold water, you know, spicy foods, that sort of thing. But if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, it's really like the less than one percenters. Um, so really take a good hard look at the overall condition of your diet or what are you doing overall rather than trying to rely on dumping coconut oil and apple cider vinegar into everything and hoping that you're going to become this fat burning machine like it, you know, touted on social media. <laughs> it's conceptually similar to supplements, right? So yeah. I think I said in the prior episode yeah. that you can't take a C minus gut and turn it into an A plus with supplements. Yeah. And this is the same thing. It's very trendy. It's very, it's very like, it's a fad. Um, and maybe there is some minor benefit, but you're missing the big picture, which is that diet and lifestyle are far more important. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually love apple cider vinegar. I don't eat it or drink it. I actually put it, I dilute it with some water and I use it as like a face, a face toner. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah. To like help take my makeup off. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. when, When I use it, I always dilute it and that includes kombucha too. Like if I pour myself kombucha, I usually will pour myself three or four ounces. Mm-hmm. And then I'll typically add at least double, if not triple that amount in water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your dentist is probably going to love you for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question from Perry. And this is a great one. What circumstances would you recommend probiotics for? And if you guys haven't heard uh, Dr. B talk about the difference between pro and prebiotics before, go back and check out his other episodes as well. Because we did take a bit of a more of a deeper dive into that in the previous episodes. Yeah. So I think, you know, probiotics, the, the way I feel about this, and by the way, probiotics are very, you know, this is one of the conversations that exists in my book. Um, the problem is this, Leanne, you, or Perry, who is asking this question, we each have a completely unique gut microbiome. It's completely unique. There's no one on the planet quite like you. And when I give you a probiotic, I'm taking a generic formulation, and I'm going to have you swallow it. And I'm going to hope that this generic formulation can interact with your completely unique gut microbiome Mm -hmm. and lead to good chemistry, you know, lead to some sort of health benefit. And the problem is that for many people, that just doesn't happen. And we're not yet at a point where we have the ability to know, like, I'm excited about the future of probiotics more so than I'm excited about the now of probiotics. Mm -hmm. Some of my patients do benefit. Don't get me wrong. Some of my patients benefit and they feel better. And if you feel better and you notice the difference, then as long as you're comfortable with the price, mm-hmm. I support it. But the problem is that so many people are told, oh, gut health is, you know, if you got a gut health problem, take a probiotic. And they spend a lot of money and they don't get anywhere. And if you don't get anywhere, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. So I think the point from my perspective is that there is a place for probiotics. The studies that suggest benefit tend to be gut health related for the most part. What I mean by that is specific to digestive symptoms like gas and bloating, mm-hmm. diarrhea, constipation, irritable bowel syndrome. We do have studies for people that have a, a gut bug. Mm-hmm. We also have studies for people that have ulcerative colitis mm-hmm. or have had their colon removed. This is a very specific scenario. They've had their colon removed and they can develop something called pouchitis. Mm-hmm. So we have studies for those 
conditions specifically. I would warn people, since we're on the topic, to not take probiotics after antibiotics. There is a study that came out out of Israel that suggested that it actually slows the recovery of the gut microbiome to take a probiotic during the month after you take an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so I guess that's the bottom line is there are these conditions that are tend to be digestive symptoms or digestive diseases where it can potentially benefit. It's trial and error where we stand right now. If you try it and it works, that's great. And the other thing, which I think you're probably going to point out if I don't, is that you got you to gotta look for the specific probiotic that was shown in studies to be beneficial. So don't just pick some arbitrary probiotic. Yeah. Figure out what, what are you trying to fix and then go and find the study that showed that there was a benefit and use that probiotic. Yeah, you definitely need the, the strain they used in the study and the specified amount as well, which is really important. You can't just go in and grab the most expensive one with the most CFU off the shelf and hope that that, that does the trick. I'm honestly convinced that the probiotic companies, the smart ones are the ones that make it the most expensive mm. because it, it, it like gives you a false idea that it must be higher quality. Yeah. And in many cases, it's not. Yeah. Or a lot of people say to me, oh, I take the one with the most, um, you know, probiotics are rated on the, the CFU, the amount in there. And I take the one with the, you know, the, the 10, 10 billion CFU in there instead of the one with the, you know, the, the 1 billion because that, that's got to be better. Uh, yeah. So you know, and it, it, it all comes back to diet and lifestyle first, prebiotics second, and then to me, probiotics come third. Mm-hmm. So they can help some people, but not not all, certainly not all. And sometimes it's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that we've both seen um, a lot of clients that have benefited a lot more from diet, sleep, and managing their stress than they ever have from, you know, just taking a probiotic. Mm-hmm. But then I think it also comes back to people want that quick fix, don't they? They just want to take the pill, pop the pill, we're done here, my gut's perfect, rather than actually do the hard yard and the hard work. Yeah, that's right. And Well, and the problem is the quick fix usually is not going to be sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Might initially make you feel a little bit better. Again, could that be a placebo effect? <laughs> it could. And now you mentioned the very interesting study around probiotics and antibiotics, and you, you mentioned um, not taking it directly after the antibiotic. Is that also the case for taking it with the probiotics? I know a lot of people will take an antibiotic and a probiotic at the same time. So is that your meaning for both? Don't take it with it and don't take it afterwards as well because it can slow the recovery of your gut. So I, I generally speaking, yeah, generally speaking, recommend that people stop taking these probiotics at the time that they're taking the antibiotic. And mm-hmm. all the way through. So if like, let's say you're already on one. Yeah. If you're already on one, I'm actually going to tell you to stop it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you to focus on your diet and lifestyle and to take a prebiotic because the prebiotic will support your gut microbiome through the antibiotics and beyond and help you to recover your gut much faster. Mm-hmm. All right. The, um, but I will tell you, Ian, that there are scenarios that I can conjure up where I will tell an individual patient to continue their probiotic. Mm-hmm. It's just not very common. These are like, you know, one in a hundred type scenarios. And so the point being from the vast majority of people, they're probably better off stopping their probiotic. Yeah. And I think this brings us back to perfectly saying you always must link in with your healthcare professional. Don't just because we discuss it on a podcast, go and try X, Y, and Z at home without first talking to your gastroenterologist, your dietitian, or even just your your standard general doctor that you you go and see most days um, just to sort of get that okay. Because as we, we keep saying, this is all just... Um, you know, advice for the masses, but everybody is different and everybody does have different scenarios at home, don't they? 
Lovely. Well, next question. I'm really hitting you hard today, Dr. B, is from Wendy. I love it. These are great questions. you got some brilliant followers. Yeah, they're good, aren't they? Um, Now, Wendy would like to know, I don't tolerate legumes that well, um, and I struggle to get protein in on a vegan diet, and I'm trying to build muscle mass for my first bodybuilding competition. Is eating tofu regularly okay, or would you consider tofu a processed food? Well, okay, so I want it to be organic. That's first and foremost. Um, I worry about tofu that is not organic because many times it's genetically modified, Mm -hmm. genetically modified soy that has been sprayed with glyphosate. Mm -hmm. All right. So I want it to be organic. I don't think that the tofu, although tofu is low FODMAP compared to many other legumes, um, I don't want you to go completely overboard on making this the like, you know, principal source of protein in your diet. Mm. I mean, for me, I would, I would be looking at alternative choices as well. For example, I would be sneaking some tempeh in there mm-hmm. and I would be looking at other great sources of protein that are not necessarily legumes. Mm-hmm. So for example, quinoa, quinoa is a fantastic source of protein. Um, and you can find a lot of protein in many different types of nuts or nut butters. Mm-hmm. Right. So I would be looking to alternative choices. I mean, peanut butter, for example, peanut butter, which by the way, peanuts are, are actually a legume. Um, but peanut butter is a great source of protein. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would do. I would just make sure that you're not, because what you're trying to do with your body is a little bit extreme in the sense that you're competing in a weightlifting competition. Yeah. I would be cautious to not allow that to cause long-term harm to your body because you're doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on one specific food group yeah, and then ignoring the other foods. Mm -hmm. It is a difficult one because there is actually the research and the science to show that people actively building muscle mass and and competing do need those higher protein requirements. But at the same time, a lot of them are trying to build muscle mass, but also hit that calorie deficit. So they can't, they don't have those extra calories that would normally easily come from fats to be able to build up enough protein that way. So it is a tricky one. And that would be a case where I would definitely say, I really hope Wendy that you are working with um, a sports dietitian as well to Mm -hmm. try and, um, to try and, um, I guess, just maximize the nutrients that you're getting in and helping you helping you out in that way because it is a tricky one. But I'm I'm a massive fan of tofu. I eat it quite regularly. Um, yeah. And the one the brand that I buy is um, is organic as well. So that's good to know. Yeah, and, I, <laughs> and like I, I love tofu too. And I, I don't I don't hold back on tofu. I guess my mm. concern would be, and I, and I think you're exactly right, Leanne. Like this is a situation where you really could use an expert to help guide you. Mm. Um, but my concern would be if you're having tofu like you know twice a day. Yeah, yeah. Or that's more. excessive. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. And you quite boring as well, might I add, <laughs> if that's all that you're eating. <laughs> right. All right. Now, next question from Melanie. There are so many gut health supplements on the market. If you're eating well and we have no symptoms, will taking a supplement, um, something like collagen, inul- something with collagen, inulin, resistant starch, guar gum, and probiotics in it help to maximize our gut health? I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is more better. I think I know exactly what I remember this question. She sent me the link to a product, which was basically termed, it was like a gut health supplement. Like it was a powder, you mix it in water. And I looked up the ingredients and it had things in it like, you know, collagen for your gut health, um, probiotics, prebiotics, resistant starch. It was saying all the right things on the label. But is that, is it, you know, is it going to be helpful if you're somebody who's fit, healthy, well, zero symptoms, their gut health is pretty good? Right. It's an expensive supplement as well, might I add. Yeah. Um, so it's hard for me to advocate for that supplement supplement specifically in a person who is already feeling really good. Yeah. Um, I just don't see what you're really going to necessarily gain with all those different things. 
And just to frame the answer real quick from my perspective, so I consider myself to be in excellent health. I have no medical issues. I'm on no medicines. I'm 40 years old. I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. Mm -hmm. I, my gut health secret is my diet and my, my lifestyle. I do use some prebiotic supplements. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the reason why is because I believe in the science. And I also have noticed a difference in the way that I feel when I'm taking them. I personally, although I could get probiotics for free, I mean, there's tons of companies that would send them to me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't take probiotics. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't take collagen. And the reason that I don't take collagen is that although this is a very, very hyped up thing, um, you know, I, I question where, I question where that's coming from because there's no study. Yes. Agreed. So it's hard for me to say that that's a good thing for gut health if we don't have a study to back it up. And I think, again, it's the whole thing around marketing, like companies can basically kind of say or, or do whatever they please until, you know, somebody really pulls them up on it. And there's a lot of companies out there saying, you know, this is collagen for your gut health. Take a couple of scoops of this each day, you'll feel fabulous. But again, where is that research coming from? Who's actually looked into that? Because as far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen any credible, reputable studies that show that taking collagen powder is actually beneficial for your gut health. So again, if you're listening at home, I haven't really seen that that science to support that. Um, and as you said, there's so many other wonderful things that we can do purely from a diet and lifestyle perspective first. Why would you Why would you opt for something? This is just a, a broad question, not necessarily specific to collagen, but mm. why would you opt for something that has no science to back it mm. and that is going to cost you a large amount of money on a monthly basis? Mm. Why would you opt for that when we have so many things that are less expensive? that actually have completely strong science to back them up and mm. it can actually accomplish the goal that you're trying to accomplish, mm. which is to improve your gut. You know, And that's, that's the issue that I come to is the marketing hype. Marketing is so powerful. Mm -hmm. That's the problem, yes. honestly. Marketing is so powerful and, it, and it, it, it basically inserts itself into the conversation so that you start to believe that this is the path to gut health because that's what you've heard from the marketing machine. And that's what you've heard from potentially, frankly, the influencers who have been bought to spread this message because they're yes. making a living off of that. Yes. And, you know, it's um, problematic because, again, there's no study to back, to back that up. And, you know, what drives me insane is this. If this is a billion-dollar industry, mm. which it is, mm -hmm. if this is a billion-dollar industry, why is no one willing to step forward and fund a study to show that it actually does what it does. You know why? Because they got nothing to gain. Yeah. They got nothing to gain and everything to lose because if that study actually shows that it does nothing, if they publish it, oh, bad for business. Yeah. That CEO is getting fired, right? Mm -hmm. And don't you think that they would try to do that study so that they could actually show it? Don't you yeah. think they would? Yeah. They probably have. And you know what? There's no study that exists because you're not going to publish it if it doesn't show that there's a result. Just saying. Yeah. No, I know. I couldn't agree, couldn't agree more. Um, now, Blanca says, I am so embarrassed. I have terrible smelling gas sometimes. What causes this and how do I stop it? I eat fairly healthy with lots of fruits and veggies. So again, this is a common complaint that I'm sure that we both get through our DMs all the time. Yeah. Well, I think, so I would first rewind back about 20 or 25 minutes to when we were talking about gas and bloating. Mm -hmm. Because the smell is a part of this equation, okay? But first, we want to make sure that there's not some underlying root issue that needs to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. So could there be underlying constipation? 
could there be damage to the gut microbiome? And then the bigger question, the more specific question when you're talking about the smell of the gas is, uh, and by the way, I'm like, it's amazing how comfortable I am talking. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, who am I that I'm, I'm on a podcast with thousands of people listening and I'm like talking about the smell of the gas and I'm the damn expert. What the heck happened in my life? So funny. It's like, we. I just talk about Bristol stool charts all day long. <laughs> Don't even blink an eyelid. <laughs> I never, I never thought when I was a kid that someday I would be the expert on the smell of the gas. <laughs> anyway, but the, it goes back to, so we talked about it, it could be constipation, it could be damage to the gut microbiome, mm-hmm. but particularly with the smell of the gas, the more important question is what are you eating? Mm-hmm. What are you eating? And, and sometimes that can be, this person sounds like they have a very healthy diet. For some people, it can be related back to the animal products, the fat content and the protein, mm-hmm. animal protein that in excessive amounts can cause this sort of smell. And that's frankly the result of decomposition of meat, right? I mean, essentially effectively being sort of broken down and rotten in your gut. But the other part of this is what plants, what, what plants in a person who eats a healthy diet can cause gas and bloating and stinky gas. Mm -hmm. And we tend to, I tend to think of two main groups. One is the cruciferous vegetables. Mm -hmm. So like Broccoli sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, kale. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the second one that I think of is the aromatics. And so onions, garlic, leeks, mm-hmm. shallots, that kind of stuff. Those to me are the main ones that I think about when it comes to this sort of thing of, of you know, foul smelling gas. Wonderful. And if you're listening at home and they are wonderfully healthy things that Dr. B just listened, some really simple, just cooking tips, like instead of eating your cruciferous vegetables raw, cooking them can have a world of difference. I've had a lot of patients who are really bad, bad um, bloating and gas, eat a ton of like broccoli, cauliflower, but they have it raw, like grated up in a salad, just try cooking it. And that can, can be really, really helpful for some people. And even same things like onion and garlic, just using the, the green part of the spring onion rather than um, onion in your meals can be, can be a little bit helpful as well. And just reduce reducing the amount of it and then trying to gradually build up your tolerance over time. Because as we said, these things are wonderfully healthy. We don't want to cut them out altogether, but sometimes just reducing the amount or the um, frequency that you're having them initially can be helpful to get the, the gas under control and then slowly reintroducing it as well. That is such a great point. People think that a raw diet is like, you, you know, that, that's the holy grail that everyone should be eating a 100% raw diet. And I don't agree with that. You know, I think that cooking your food is number one, perfectly acceptable. There are plenty of examples um, where cooking your food actually enhances the bioavailability of specific nutrients. For example, when you cook a tomato, you get more lycopene, you know, that's one example. So, um, and, but the point being that if you're a person who has a damaged gut going for, don't try to force raw foods on your gut cook your food, make it more gentle. And then over time, you can start to add in the raw foods as you're, as you're describing, Leanne, I think that's perfect. Because mm, a lot of times when you're cooking the food, the fiber um, is sort of broken down a little bit in the cooking as well. So it's a little bit gentler um, on, your, on your tummy to digest some of that as well. So a um, little tip at home. And I don't know if we talked about this or not, mm. but raw foods, raw foods and cooked foods, when it's literally the exact same plant, mm-hmm. can have differential effects on the gut microbiome. Have we talked mm-hmm. about that? No, I don't think we have. Please continue. (laughs) Well, there was a very interesting study um, done by one of the top microbiome researchers. His name is Peter Peter Turnbaugh. Mm -hmm. And basically what he showed is if you take literally the exact same food and a person eats it raw, and then a person eats that same food later on, but cooked, Mm -hmm. 
because you're transforming the fiber, which is what you're describing, Leanne, you actually ha- will have a different, a slightly different effect on the gut microbiome. So we've talked about how diversity of plants is important because every plant has its own unique forms of fiber. Mm-hmm. And what now we're saying is that even within a single plant, the way that you cook it could alter the fiber and lead to a different effect on your gut microbiome. So there's a little health hack that I included in my book that I thought was kind of fun, mm. which is that if you are cooking your food, if you're cooking your food, take just a little bit of the food mm-hmm. and put it to the side and eat it raw. And I don't necessarily mean the garlic, but like let's pretend that you're going to saute some greens, yeah. right? Put a little bit of the greens to the side and eat it raw because then you get the benefit for your gut microbiome of mm-hmm. both the raw green and also the sauteed green. And that is like, even though it's one plant in terms of the effect on the gut microbiome, it's like you just ate two totally different plants. Awesome. Love it. I do yeah. I do that anyway because I get hungry when I'm cooking my dinner. So I'll be chopping up all my veggies for my stir fry and I munch on my carrot and my celery and my <laughs> you know, my my capsicum or what you guys call them bell peppers. I do it anyway. But I like to recommend for clients. Um that's an amazing tip. But also just aiming for simple things like having one sort of salad a day and one one meal with cooked veggies a day. So a lot of people tend to, if they go to work, they'll take like a, a beautiful salad with them or some sort of more rural meal with them. And then at dinner time they like a nice hot meal. Um, or it might be reverse in, in summer time, you know, you might like to have your, your salad um, at, at dinner time and take a nice hot meal if you work somewhere with air conditioning or something for your lunchtime. So that's another simple way to just make sure that you're getting, as you said, different um, benefits for your gut health. And remembering as well, different types of foods and veggies have um, different vitamins, different minerals, and that's why they're all so important, different types of fiber. Mm-hmm. And if you're only eating, you know, cooked vegetables, you're going to miss out on a lot of things like your salad greens and um, other things that you might only put into a salad um, versus things you might only put into a stir fry or into a curry or something like that. So I do think they're both super important as well. And then final question for you, Dr. B. Connie would like to know, do I need to soak things like rolled oats and nuts before I eat them? Or can I just blend them straight into a smoothie without without soaking them? Lectins have me all confused and everybody is saying different things. Couldn't agree more, Connie. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think that the important thing to understand about lectins is that I guess let me break down the science just for a moment. You know, lectins are ubiquitous in nature. They're everywhere. Like all foods contain some degree of lectins. We as humans have lectins, all right? So they're, they are literally everywhere. So if you were to write a book to say, oh, I found lectins, it's like, well, that's not that novel. That's not that <laughs> exciting, right? And most of the studies that have been done to suggest that lectins can cause any sort of injury or harm to the gut are done in the setting of a test tube. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like an, it's like a in vitro study where you like have something inside of a test tube and you shake it up. And that, that is not natural, you know, taking some concentrated thing that is not a part of a real food and shaking it up with some cells in a test tube is not the same thing as me eating a bean. Yeah. All right. Now there are two examples that I find to be kind of interesting where people had harm by consuming lectins. Mm-hmm. All right. One of them was a party back in the 1980s where someone didn't cook the beans. All right. They, they, like, they didn't cook the beans. <laughs> yeah. And because okay. they didn't cook the beans, people got sick. It was actually at a hospital. Oh. All no. right. And the employees, it was like an employee party. 
from the employees of the of the of the of the hospital. They got sick. Yeah. All right. Twenty four hour thing, and then they were all back to work the next day. Yeah. Right. So it really wasn't that big of a deal. It was not some sort of life threatening thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And it, again, they didn't cook the beans. Yeah. The second example was this weird thing that happened in Japan, all right, where they, there was something that happened where they recommended to people that they take this one specific bean and they basically put it up into like a coffee grinder type of deal mm-hmm. where you could take the hard bean and turn it into grinds mm-hmm. and then eat it. Again, they're not cooking they the bean. Cook it, yeah. Yeah. And it led to like on mass scale because it was put on television. On mass scale, people got sick. Yeah. Okay. Right. Not but again, like twenty-four hour thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Almost like food poisoning. Like food poisoning. Like you, you mm-hmm. got uh, your stomach got upset. You had some diarrhea, and then it was gone. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so these two examples do exist. Those are the human studies that you have for lectins causing harm. That's it. And in both examples, it's people that are taking, doing things that no normal human would do, which is taking a hard bean and eating it while it's still hard. Yeah. If you cook your beans, the, the, the lectins are virtually non-existent. Yeah. Right? So I don't live in fear of lectins. I want people to understand that the foods that have been vilified because they contain lectins, legumes, mm-hmm. and whole grains, mm-hmm. you can look in a test tube and you can find that they cause harm. That is the lowest quality research that exists. The highest quality research that exists are systematic reviews and meta-analyses, and we have systematic reviews and meta-analyses that show that people who eat beans and people who eat whole grains, they live longer, mm-hmm. they have less heart disease, they are less likely to die of heart disease, they have less cancer, they are less likely to die of cancer. All right, I just gave you a couple of darn good reasons, and I could give you more, but I just gave you a couple of darn good reasons when we actually study what happens when real people eat real food. Mm-hmm. This is what happens. They live longer with less heart disease and less cancer, right? So why would we run away from that? Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. Yeah. So perfectly healthy foods. Um, in terms of soaking them, Connie, I don't soak my oats. I don't soak my nuts. I whack them straight into a smoothie, put them straight on top of my porridge bowl. Perfectly fine. Perfectly healthy. Nothing wrong with me at the moment. <laughs> no, I don't soak mine either. And I apologize because I, I got triggered. I got triggered. If you drop the L bomb. <laughs> If you use the L word, I, I like have to go off. So I apologize for that. But I, no, it was I very interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, because there are on social media, you see you see two different types of people. The type of people who are like, lectins are terrible, don't ever eat them. And the other half who are like, lectins are bad, but if you soak everything, you're fine. Um, and so it's good that you kind of address both parts. But I think like if you have the time at home to go and soak all of your grains and your nuts and that sort of thing before you eat them, if you want to do that and you have the time, be my guest. Like it's not going to harm you. Yeah. But at the same time, people live such busy lives and everyone's excuse is, oh, I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to eat healthy. If that's going to be a barrier to you eating some of these wonderful healthy foods, then don't let it because you absolutely don't have to soak your grains and that sort of thing. Some grains, definitely, but you don't have to soak things like nuts or rolled oats before you eat them. You can just whack them straight into a porridge bowl or a smoothie, blend them up and and drink them straight away. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I don't soak, I don't soak, you know, hardly anything. So, um, and I'm not worried about it and I don't think I'm dying of lectins. I'm quite sure of that. Yeah. But moral of the story, it is important to cook your beans. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Dr. V, thank you so much. That is the last uh, listener question that we have for you today. Um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about um, your amazing book, Fiber Fueled. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm really excited to share this book with people because this was, you know, I think the fascinating thing about writing a book 
is that you take literally an entire year of focus and concentration. You know, this is the biggest um, sort of project of my life. And you take an entire year of it and it gets condensed into something that's tangible, you know, that you can sit down and you can read in a weekend. And it, and it doesn't break the bank. I mean, it only costs so much money to get this book, right? So mm. that's the beautiful thing about writing a book, period. I, I'm excited about this. This, this book is my passion. It, the way that it all played out for me to get to the point that I was writing a book is all just me riding a wave of being excited about nutrition and thinking that we should be talking about this more mm-hmm. and, and seeing the connection between fiber and, and the gut microbiome and wanting to share that story, you know, and like, it's kind of funny because, you know, we were on the show together not that long ago mm-hmm. and now here we are again and, you know, we're having these conversations and we continue to evolve. This is the playbook for gut health. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. This is the playbook for gut health. Not only does it show you the science, over 600 references, mm-hmm. it's packaged in a way that's fun. It's easy to read. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Probably the most important chapter is chapter five, which is how, how to find your plant passion with a sensitive gut. Mm-hmm. It's, for the per, it's for the person who has food sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And then when it's all said and done, I couldn't leave you hanging and just be like, oh, and so here's the way that you eat. Go do it. <laughs> I couldn't do that. So there's an entire four week plan with over 70 recipes. And I think what's one of the things that I'm really proud of with the book, Leanne, is that it's also very individualized. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to ram some specific plan that's like, you know, hey, this is the way you're going to do it. And if you don't do it my way, you're a horrible person. You and I were just talking about the bio individuality of the gut. We are all unique when it comes to our gut microbiome. This book is designed to meet you where you are and to help you walk this path towards a healthier gut microbiome. But even in the four-week plan, it's going to be your own experience. The way that you do it, Leanne, would be different than the way that I would do it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we're sharing this experience and we're both learning similar stuff and we're still, the compass is pointing in the same direction. We're still walking towards the same goal. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the bottom line. Fiber Fueled, um, it's out May 12th. It's spelled the American way. Fiber. <laughs> so fiber and fu- even fueled, even fueled is like, I've, I managed to put together two words that, you know, Australians uh, spell differently. But, and I hope, I hope it, like for the people who are listening, if you enjoy this podcast, I want you to share it mm-hmm. because we need to elevate high quality information and sharing high quality information allows us to combat the misinformation on the internet. And the same is true with my book. If you enjoy my book, DM me, DM me, reach out to me, let me know. Mm -hmm. And if you want to share it, share it and I will share it myself. Sounds amazing. Yep. So guys, make sure you're taking uh, the harnessing the power of social media and sharing all of Dr. B's wonderful messages. You can see he's, he's not here trying to, um, you know, tell you to go down one path or go down another path. He's literally just here telling you the latest science and research in the field of gut health. And if you want, and you couldn't even imagine how much information he's got in his book. I've had a, I've actually just started reading it. I must admit, I haven't finished it yet. I did have a, a good look through the recipes to start with. And then I went back and actually started reading it. You nice. can see where my, where my brain lies, start with food first and then go backwards. <laughs> I love that. But um, you, you guys, he's Sounds barely great. hit the tip of the iceberg in this podcast and the, and the few that we've done in the past as well. So if you, this sparks any interest in you whatsoever, it might be that you have perfect gut health, but you 
know a loved one that struggles with it or somebody that you live with or your mum's got problems with, um, um, you know, her gut health and symptoms as well, you can read this and actually, you know, teach your loved ones as well. So if there's any person that I recommend in terms of um, gut health that is reputable and knows their stuff, it is 100% Dr. B and I could not advocate for his um, his new book anymore. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Leanne, that is amazing. Thank you so much. And the other thing that I, I was just had is that if you have perfect gut health, this book is for you too. You know why? Mm. Because you don't want to wake up one day and discover that you have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or irritable bowel syndrome. You want to protect. You want, if you have perfect gut health, you should be doing this too. Because this is all, if all health starts in the gut, then we need to make sure that we are constantly fostering that relationship and making it as strong as we can make it as strong as we can possibly make it. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. All right. And I will put the link to Dr. B's book in um, the show notes as well. But if you um, have any, I guess, concerns around that or the country that you live in, does it ship to where you are, that sort of thing, just send Dr. B a DM on Instagram. He's great at um, replying to those and he'll let you know wherever you are in the world where you can get your hands on a copy of his book because it's definitely in digital format as well, isn't it's it? It's in digital format. It's in hardcover. Yeah. And then we're expecting it to come yep. out in audiobook shortly after the initial release. Amazing. So good. So good. Dr. B. All right. Thank you so much again for coming on the podcast, sharing all of your wisdom and answering our listener questions. They were, they're absolutely incredible. And uh, we very much hope to have you back again sometime soon, maybe for book number two in a couple of years. Oh. <laughs> no, you know what would be fun is I want to come to Australia. I would, I would love to come to Australia. It'd be fun to hang out and, and record a vibe. That would be so cool. I actually went on a bushwalk the other day and I saw two koalas. It was, it was amazing. Even when I live in Australia, I'm like, these are the coolest animals ever. So if you ever do come, let me know. We'll go have some food. I can take you on an awesome bushwalk, go koala spotting. <laughs> it was, it'd be great. Did I ever tell you that when I was a kid, like when I was a little boy, I had a um, stuffed animal that was a koala. Oh, really? And his name was Ricky. And he oh, was, and I slept with Ricky. <laughs> I, I slept with Ricky every night until I turned 28 years old. Oh, wow! I'm, and I'm where kidding. is Ricky like, now? <laughs> Ricky is actually back home at my mom's house. I still got him. He's still there. So good. So yeah, so good. I love koalas. Yeah, oh, they're the best animals. All right, Doctor B, I will let you go. But thank you so much for joining us. And guys, as we mentioned, please take the time to share this to your Instagram or your Facebook stories, or do us a post if you enjoy this episode, and let us know what the key takeaways were for you and what you found super interesting, or what you've tried at home in your own life, and it really made a, a difference or a benefit to you. We'd love to hear. Amazing. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you so much. All right, guys, and we will catch you in the very next episode.